Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 400. Yes, indeed, 400 episodes. This program is a dedicated to merit of Baruch Ben Yom and Ben Menuch and Miriam Baschai Sarah Altois, Yukusil Ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadus, Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altois. Never imagined when we began over eight years ago this program, My Life Chassidah Supplied, that would be by episode 400. I thought maximum it would be a half a year, a year, cover most of the most important questions people have, personal questions, emotional questions, nothing off limits. As you know, the motto or the theme of this program is that everything can and should be asked and will be addressed but I didn't really expect that it would last so long. Firstly, that you, the listener, each one of you, would participate in such a personal and engaging way in submitting questions, comments, which is really what is the oxygen of this program, is your questions. Since they kept on coming, I continued the program. And though I thought that there's only that limited amount of questions on the spectrum, but the fact of the matter is life is complex, and each of us continue to have issues and challenges and questions, the struggles in our personal, psychological, emotional lives, applying Teirachsidis to each of those specifics. So once you get down to the details of every person's individual life, it shouldn't be a surprise that there'd be constantly questions. And even if some of them overlap, but it's still personal. And I see it that way, each person addressing their issue in their time. And of course, in time, things happen also in the world. We've had COVID, now recently the war in Ukraine, before that other challenges in Israel, in, uh, in America, all over the world. Unfortunately, negative things, a lot of beautiful things. So it's been some journey, and perhaps one day will be documented through the questions that were asked on this program. You can essentially take the pulse and get a sense of what is in the climate, what are, what's on people's minds and hearts. So it's a great honor and continues to be a great honor. So thank you for that. It is a partnership between yourself and myself. And uh, it's been, as I said, an extraordinary journey. And thank you for allowing me and the Meaningful Life Center into your life and for asking literally the most sensitive and personal questions one can ever share, which to me is a great tribute of trust and um, to, to try to reach some form of clarity based on chassidus, and hence the name my life is supplied. So, our goal, of course, is to lead straight into the Gula Mitis Vashlema, which is the whole purpose of applying Chassidus to life, is to live a life. The time of Gula will be a life that will be saturated and completely permeated with the Torah and Chassidish approach to life, which is the blueprint that God gave us to live our lives aligned with the way God intended. Think of Torah as the life as life's operator's manual. And with Chassidus being specifically the soul of Teda, the Nishmasa Daraisa, that addresses it and applies the Teda to our personal and emotional and spiritual and psychological lives. So with that, let's go into, as we always do, we begin with what is time-sensitive and time-relevant. We're now, today's Rosh Chedesh Ir, the first day of Rosh Chedesh Ir, tomorrow will be the second day of Rosh Chedesh Ir. So happy Rosh Chedesh to everybody. Rosh is a special day. Yisrael Menin Levana. 
the Jewish people count by the moon and were compared to the moon. So the new moon we sanctify each month and it symbolizes our very lives, the cycles of the moon, its waxing and waning, its rebirth. So this is the rebirth of the month of year and every month has its particular energy. So we'll talk about that. It's also outside of Eretz Yisrael, Pasha Kedeshim. In Eretz Yisrael, in Israel, they're reading this week Pasha's Emmer. So we'll talk about that as well as some other questions that came up connected to this week in general and, and this, week, this week's events, as well as general issues that uh, life, as I said, continues to pose. To, uh, pose. And here's a great opportunity to invite and welcome you again, if this, you're new to the program or you've been here before, to submit any question. Nothing is taboo. Nothing is off limits. Chassidusapply.com. There's a form completely anonymous, that you can uh, submit. There is a backup, to be honest, but at the same time, I continue to address issues, and we will get to your question. There you'll also find ExodusApply.com, a full array of resources, including, of course, the 399 previous episodes archived there, as, as well as six years of essays, and the last creative contest, submitted by thousands of different people applying chassidus to contemporary and personal issues. And yes, those are asking about whether the contest will continue. It will continue. We're just revisiting it and planning it. We want to connect it with an event. So please be patient and you will hear more about it. Okay. So let's go straight into the month of year. What energy and message does this month contain? Every month... As time in general, according to Judaism, is energy. Kol yema v'yema over davidite, every day has its own unique energy. Like Sunday is chesed, Monday is gvura, and so on, all the way to Shabbos being malchus. So they have their divine and unique, powerful energy. But the same is true not just with days, it's also true with weeks, months, as well as even seconds and minutes. But here we're talking about the month of year. So what is the year? What is the m- m- energy and, and message of year? So year, and, and this brings to the next question, what are the different acronyms of year? So you look at the name year, and year has an acronym. It's four letters. Aleph, Yud, Yud, Resh, sometimes spelled with one Yud. And there's two main acronyms that are brought. Someone else wrote, did the Rebbe once say the month of year stands for Ani Hashem Refecha? Yes, that's correct. So one acronym is Ani Hashem Refecha, which we actually read on Pesach in the Torah. I, God, am your healer. So it's referring to Ani Hashem Refecha, Aleph Yud Reish. The second acronym is two Yuds, is Avram, Yitzchok, Yaakov, and Rochel. So the names of the three patriarchs and one of the matriarchs. So this person writing about Niyashem Refecha is their connection between being healed from the trauma of slavery in Egypt in order to get ready for receiving the Torah. In what ways is Hashem healing us today from the trauma of 2,000 years of Golis in order for us to be ready for Geula? Okay, so we'll use that as a segue here. So of course, it's since Niyashem Refecha does refer to the Jews coming out of Mitzrayim, Egypt, and that Hashem will no samti alechem, I will not place upon them any of the illnesses and the maladies that were placed on Egypt. And then it says, Ani Hashem Refecha. So the sequence in time makes total sense. The month of year comes straight from Pesach. Last week was Pesach. 
Pesach concludes at the end of Nisan and goes right into the next week is the month of Ir. So in the context of things, Nisan, Ir, and then will come the third month, Sivan. When I say the third, because according to the sequence and schedule of the months, the first month, the lunar calendar begins with Nisan, so it's considered Chedesh Harishan, it's called, in the Torah. These names, Nisan, Ir, Sivan, are not in the actual Chumash. They're later, the Shemesh Olel Imam Bebovel, some of them are, came from Bovel, some of them different uh, sources for those names. So it's really named one, two, and three. Month one is Nisan, month two is Ir, and month three is Sivan, which is significant as well. And how? So Ir, therefore, comes straight from Nisan. So it makes sense that Nish Hashem Refecha, which is referring to all the maladies connected to Egypt. Now Egypt can mean literally the Makis, the plagues that that were that um, that Egypt was struck with, but in a broader sense, we know Mitzrayim comes from the word constraints. It means the Mitzrayim within our souls, within each of our psyches, within each one of our personalities, the different constraints and limitations and inhibitions and fears and insecurities. And you can fill in the blanks. Every form of Mitzrayim that plagues your life, that affects your life, in a subtle way or in a more overt way, is Mitzrayim, and that's why it's called it's, it's called Machla. A machla means the illnesses that can be the psychological, emotional concerns that we have that affect, that, that, are, that strike our mitzrayim in our souls. And on Yeshem Rafecha, God says, I will not place that upon you because I, God, I myself, God, and there's the divine soul within each one of us that manifests the godliness will be your healer. And my form of healing is not only will I not, not will I heal you from these illnesses, it says, even on a deeper level, I will be preventive. So when a person is aligned, like I mentioned before, what is health? Health is when your body, physical health, his body is aligned to the energy that's flowing within it. When, thank God, your circulatory system and your nervous system and your... Uh, muscular systems, and all the other systems in your being, your breathing and everything is smooth, meaning the kalim, the very limbs and organs, and all the details of your body are proper containers that are allowing in a transparent and seamless way for the flow of energy to flow through it. That's called health. If, God forbid, there's a blockage or an impediment or a growth or another form of an ailment, a sickness, what does it do? It impedes that flow. So just like you would have the flow of water flowing smoothly, if something impedes it, then the flow is not there completely, and that can, that can cause illness and can cause da- the danger that, that sickness brings. Ultimately, death, Rahman al-Islan, is when the energy of the soul and the body are not aligned. The body is not able to contain it. Either it's worn down or something has damaged the body or a sickness or age or whatever it may be that doesn't allow for the smooth flow of the soul energy within the body. The same is true when you talk about spiritual ailments. As the Rambam says, there's cheli ha-nefesh, cheli ha-guf, spiritual ailments is all the psychological issues we struggle with. And this can be depression, it can be anger, it can be fear, it can be insecurity, different addictions, all the things that we struggle with. Our relationships, in relationships, in marriage, and with children, with friends, with others, Everything that the human being struggles with is a form of Mitzrayim. That too is a disconnect. So when a person, however, aligns themselves with what God wants you to do, and you behave in a loving way instead of a selfish way, 
That is not just a good mitzvah to do that, but it actually makes you a healthier person because it aligns your being, because your very body and your soul and your whole personality is also made up of components. And when those components, just like you need vitamin C, and you need exercise, and you need sleep, you need food and drink, and other vitamins and minerals to make your body healthy, the same is with the soul. The soul is made up of chesed, of gvura, so it needs chesed, it needs kindness, it needs discipline, it needs compassion, teferis. All the seven emotions that we now refine during these weeks of the Omer, so it's fitting to that as well. So ear is about healing in that sense. But a healing that's more than just healing, it's aligning ourselves. And that's exactly what the Jewish people did as they came out of Egypt. Well, after they had suffered under the hands of the depravity of Erva Sa'aretz, of this depraved land, and everything Egypt represented, which was antithetical to God. As Pari said a number of times, I don't know your God. In Egypt, there's no rain, so they don't look up to heaven and ask for rain. The fields are irrigated by the Nile, so they worship the Nile. They worship their own selves and their own. He said, Pari, I have the river and I created myself. So when the Jews are leaving that type of environment, a selfish, materialistic world that grew greatly, became a great empire, but it was about self. And now want to be a healthy human being, a healthy nation. So perfect timing comes in the month of year, Ni Hashem Refecha. Which of course connects us also to the second acronym. Because how do you connect to God? You connect to God through the people that, that were infused and lived their lives a godly way. And who were they? The Ovis, Hein Hein Amarkovah. Our patriarchs, Avram, Yitzchak, Yankov, Avram represented Chesed, Yitzchak, Gvura, and Yaakov, Teferes, the three main pillars, kindness and love, discipline, restraint, reverence, Ava, love, Yira, or reverence, and Teferes, compassion, the third pillar. They correspond to Teda, Vedig, Mils, Chasod. Mil's Chasadim, of course, is Chesed, is Avram, acts of kindness. Aved is Mamata Lamayel, is Gvura, is like Davening and Karbonus, which is Yitzchok, where we serve from the, from the top, from the bottom up, and Chesed is kindness coming from the top down. And Teferis is El Matan Teda, that's Teda. It's the middle, it's the middle rod, there's the middle path that balances the first two. And then we have Rachel. So even though there were four mothers, but Rachel is Malchus. So Chesed, Gvur, Teferes, and Malchus, which encompasses all the others, is drawing down this energy into, as in the language of Chesedus, from Atzilus into Biyah. Malchus is the interface between the divine world of Atzilus. Avram Yitzhak Yankov were completely dedicated, 24-7, seamless, transparent channels of the divine in this world. And Rachel carries that down into this material world. So when we count, so when we look at ear, that's the secret. When we follow the paths of Avram, Yitzchak, Yankov, and Rachel, we are then invo- we are then drawing down godliness into our lives. So you have the Ani Hashem Refecha, the healing, the healing that comes after illness, but more importantly, even preventive and preemptive medicine, which doesn't allow the illness to be there in the first place, or even when you're eliminated, it should be eliminated in a way as if it wasn't there in the first place. And the lesson to us is very powerful and personal. 
Each of us deal with our own things that need refuah, need healing, whether it's physical healing, whether it's spiritual healing, emotional, psychological healing. And this month, Allah gives us that energy. That is the message and the energy and the message of the month. Now, it's interesting in the one, two, three sequence, one is always coming from top down, like chesed. God took the Jews out of Egypt. But then comes the work from the bottom up. Number two is the work from Gvura, from the, we, we elevate. And that's the refinement that we do during the counting of the Umar of our emotions. Aligning it to what God wants us to be. Aligning us to the machine, which is our lives, to function in the most fluid and seamless fashion aligned with what the way it was meant to be. And that prepares us for month three, which is Teferis, Matan Teira, when then they join together the revelation from above and the work from below into one fusion, seamless fusion. And you have all three together, the quality of an energy that comes from above, that which is initiated and generated from below our work, and, and then the combination of both of them together. So, in connection to the, to the healing from the trauma of 2,000 years of Golis, yes, Golis is the ultimate machla, the ultimate illness, and the ultimate mitzrayim. It says, all the exiles, all the displacements are called in the name of Mitzrayim. Why? Because Mitzrayim symbolizes and signifies that dissonance that we've been talking about, that disconnect. So that's what Golis is, a disconnect, a displacement, a disalignment or a misalignment. And Geula is a realignment where everything is aligned and the world functions exactly as it was meant to be, a perfectly working machine. And life is aligned. And that's critical for that is the bittal, the selflessness that we need to get away from the selfish behavior and the arrogant behavior and focusing just on self, but aligning ourselves and being open to the flow of energy of our souls and of our divine souls and of the divine into our lives, which is a perfect segue into the next discussion, which is this week's Parsha, outside of Israel, Kedosh. It was read last week in Israel, and we discussed last week, last week's program, we discussed the distinction, what can we learn from the fact that Israel is one week ahead of us. So, bunch of questions on Pasha Kedeshim, but the first and most important is, what's the lesson? Kedeshim to you. You shall sanctify yourselves. You shall be holy. Kikodesh Ani. Because I, God, am holy. In other words, we compare, we're told to compare ourselves to God. So the Medrash, the Sifra, the Teres Kainim says, what is the meaning of the verse? So the simple Medrash states like this, you would think, um, you would think, that's what the Medrash says, that you would think since the Torah says, sanctify yourselves, that you can be as holy as God. So the Torah says, no. Your holy, my holiness, says God, is greater and higher than yours. Kikodeshoni. Comes the Baal Shem Turns it around. That's supposed to be read not as a question, but as a statement. Yochel Kameni, not you would think you could be Yochel Kameni, you could actually be as sacred as God. And furthermore, because my holiness, 
comes Mikdushashem from your holiness below. When you sanctify yourself below, you in a sense are generating and drawing down my holiness. Because that God is holy, first of all, my Kamashma, what's the Chiddush? What's the, that God is holy? God, of course, is God is holy. Secondly, is God defined by holiness? He's not defined by anything. God is God. So when you're saying, and, so, and, and then comes the Pasuk, even though the Medrash does say what it says, even the simple interpretation, what's the verse coming to tell us? That I want you to be sanctified. I want you in this material, mundane, polluted, and hostile world, I want you to sanctify yourself. Align yourself with godliness. As the Alter Rebbe explains, beautiful terms in chapter 6 in Tanya, he explains, what is Gedusha? He says, Gedusha is everything that's bottled to godliness. Everything that's not consumed with itself and is sublimated and committed to absorb something greater than itself, in this case godliness, that's called bitl and that's called gedusha. Anything that serves itself, that's about me, self-contained, is the sitra akhra, is the other side. It may not be evil or negative, but it's not aligned. And that can then lead to other things as he explains afterwards in the chapter 6 and then chapter 7 which as an aside is where I'm up to actually, we have a new program that began last year called Chassidus, Tanya Applied, like Chassidus Applied, Tanya Applied every Mitzray Shabbos, every Saturday night, 10 p.m. You could find that also at tanyaapplied.com or at chassidusapplied.com for more details. So that's what Gedusha is, and that's what we're told. And then we understand, then, what are you doing? You're drawing godliness and godly energy into existence. So we sanctify ourselves and Yochel Khomeini. We sanctify ourselves and we can be like God. And on the contrary, even greater than that, we actually generate Kedushosi Lamaila. My Kedusha Lamaila, meaning my manifestation in a way that I'm holier and I'm separate from and above everything else, is defined by you. That's called the Kedush Hashem. When we sanctify God's name, we sanctify God by behaving in a way and someone looks at you and says, Wow. This is a, a godly person. What does it say about God? Look how God, great, God is great. Does God need us to define great? But in this world, where godliness is concealed, it's the human being. It's mikdushashchem. It's our sanctification that generates and brings godliness. That's why it's up to us to make a dira betachtem, to make a home for the, God in the, for the divine in this world. Could God do it himself? But that's not the purpose. The purpose is we should do it. So the Kedusha God's uniqueness and God's sanctity comes from our Kedusha as we achieve it down below. So it's a tremendous obligation and also a tremendous gift that we have the power to be. So that answers the question, what is holiness? How is it different from goodness? Goodness is a human being, even without the Torah. The Talmud says we would learn Tzniyas from a, from a cat, Modesty from a cat. We, the Torah was not given. We could learn morality and ethics and certain etiquette and refined etiquette from nature itself or from our own logic. Humans can come up with rules of coexistence and some of them very noble ones. But that's goodness that a human being can achieve. When we say Gedusha, Gedusha is more than just human goodness. Gedusha means you're introducing something that's otherworldly transcends existence, and you bring it into existence. Goodness has a certain limit. Kedusha means when you sanctify this world, 
the way you eat, the way you drink, the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you do business. You sanctify your life. You're not just being a good person. It includes, of course, goodness and kindness. But you're bringing a dimension that's even higher than existence into existence. So in a sense, you could say goodness is like mamalakalam in the language of Chassidus. It fills, and God is, of course, good. Mahu chanun afatachan, just as God is compassionate and kind. Mahu racham racham. So too are you kind and compassionate. That's one side of it. That's the godliness that relates to existence. And then there's Kedusha, which brings a, div- a divine dimension that's even higher than existence, actually bringing something transcendent. And you say, what's the difference? What practical difference does it make? I'll tell you the difference. I remember once in one class I gave, so I was speaking about the difference between being a good person and doing good things. And you do good things. While you're doing good things, you're, you're doing something good, of course, and you deserve to be, to be commended for that. But a good person, even when you're not doing, actually, even when you're asleep, a good person is always good. What does that mean? So I explained that good things you can do when it's convenient for you. When it's not convenient, you may not be so kind. A good person is always kind and will do something even when it's not convenient. I remember after the class, a fellow came over to me and he said, with tears in his eyes, he says, you answered a question I've been struggling with all my life. I grew up in a home. My father was a very giving philanthropist. And I, was always, I always admired him for that. I remember Tuesday nights, anyone can come to our house. And they would not leave empty-handed. Whether it was financial help, whether it was finding a job, a connection, the door was open. But Wednesday night, never. The door was closed. My father had his personal things he was doing, whether it was his poker game or something else. And if you came then or at other times, you would not be treated necessarily well. You were not welcomed. And in our personal lives, without going into details, he said, my father was not always the kindest man to my mother, to, my, to us, to the children. So I always struggled as a child. You're simple. On one hand, he did trust tremendous goodness and unconditional goodness. On the other hand, there was that other side to him. And you answered the question. The goodness was good and he deserves all the credit for it. But was he a good person 24-7? or when it was convenient for him. Maybe that's what he learned from his father. And again, I commend him for that. It's great. But permeating was when, even when it wasn't when convenient for him, then not necessarily. It was on his terms. So when we do goodness, it can be goodness, and it can be beautiful, charitable, and even very charitable, but it's still on your terms. Kedusha introduces something that's greater than your terms. You go out of your comfort zone even when it's not convenient. So Gudeshim Tiyu is more than just the mitzvahs that talk about being good. It's sanctifying yourself. How, what does the Gudeshim add to all the many other verses where we are told to sanctify yourself, ourselves? Okay, so there's a, there's a famous two opinions on the word Gudeshim Tiyu, the mitzvah. The Rambam says it's not an additional mitzvah. It's essentially encompasses all the mitzvahs that the Torah talks about sanctifying yourself. The Ramban, on the other hand, says it's a specific mitzvah that comes to add something. That even though we've been told many times already, sanctify yourselves and be sacred, be holy, and other verses in Shmini and other chapters about eating kosher and, and other things, abominations, because it makes you unholy, and things to do that make you holy, 
So the Ramban says, Nachmanides, it comes to add, to negate the possibility of a novel Bereshus That's a despicable, obnoxious person who behaves a certain way, but is Bereshus He doesn't find an actual prohibition. You can sit and eat and indulge in a way that eat literally like, a, like I don't want to say the word, but completely inappropriately. But you say, I'm eating kosher. You can find loopholes in the Torah and behave obnoxiously to someone else and say, I have not crossed over, I have not, I have not transgressed any, for, any forbidden uh, mitzvah, any, uh, any avera, I have not transgressed in any way. You find people, and this of course, you see people all the time, like one person asks, can a Torah observant Jew be obnoxious? Unfortunately, yes. Is he a truly Torah observant Jew? He's technically being observed. But it's not permeated him. So the Ramban says, that's what Gedeshim to you comes to add. Not just follow the laws. Let it refine you. Make sure it refines you. Make sure that you become a godly person, that you sanctify God's name. And every detail of your behavior, not just the things that the Torah says, do this and don't do that. As the Rambam, even though the Rambam doesn't have that interpretation, but he writes in Hilchas Deus, that what, when you want to know what a wise person is, don't look only at how he studies or how he, he doesn't say that, I'm just saying, not just how he studies or does mitzvahs, but his practical behavior, how he walks, how he talks, how he sleeps, how he talks to others, how his, his daily, day, daily behavior, his business, his attitude. So even though you'll say, one second, where does the Torah say that I have to be, walk a certain way? That's Kedoshim to you, says the Rambam. Sanctify every part of your life, that your whole being, and also not just on your terms, as I explained earlier, but your whole being is permeated with a higher presence, a higher awareness, a higher state of consciousness. And that explains, yes, the Talmud says in Brachas, before he goes out to steal, he prays to God, but God told him not to steal. Because Amun of faith, he could be faithful, and he could do everything else in the Torah. But in some way, it hasn't been personalized, internalized. So you could have a person who technically is doing mitzvahs, mechanical Jew, I often call it, by rote, like robotic. Many of us, mitzvahs are noshim ulamada, by rote. And the Torah, the God says very harsh things about a person like that. That you're following the rules, you're bringing offerings, and you're saying the lip service, but you're not kind to a widow or to an orphan. What do I need all your carbonus for? Your offerings. Because that's the point. Kadeshim to you. I'm not just looking for you to have to do technical mitzvahs. It's better than nothing. The point is that the mitzvahs should be Asher Kedishanu Asher Kedishanu. The blessing of the mitzvah that the one who sanctified us and gave us these mitzvahs. Mitzvahs come from the word connections. Halacha is not just halacha laws, it's also halicha isloi. Halicha. It's a journey. It's to elevate yourself, it's to climb, to refine, to grow. And that requires effort. Not just cultural mitzvahs, meaning doing it because it's your culture, because it's your custom rituals, but to add the S-P-I in ritual, which turns it into spiritual, the neshama. Not just the body of the mitzvahs, but the soul of the mitzvahs, which of course vivifies it, brings it alive in a dynamic in a way that's filled with vitality and energy and passion and warmth. 
Is, dear Rabbi Jacobson, another question, this flow. I have a question I hope you might clarify for us. Is it true that eating and sleeping L'Shem Shamayim, meaning for the sake of God, for the sake of heaven, is a mitzvah equal to other more straightforward mitzvahs like tefillin and Shabbos kashrus? Because it falls under G'dayshim to you. You shall be sanctified. Can we say that using Gashmis L'Shem Shamayim, using physical matters for the sake of heaven, or refining our guf Gashmis, refining our body and our physicality, in this way, is actually a mitzvah daraisa. Is actually a mitzvah from the Torah. Thank you. Well, according to some opinions, for sure, probably all opinions would say there's a, a mitzvah because kedushim tiyu, even according to the Rambam, Maimonides, includes everything that sanctifies a person. So, in general terms, but then there are mitzvah specific mitzvahs. The mitzvah is klolius. So kedushim is like a mitzvah that, in general, is talking about general sanctification. So the details all fall into that category of a mitzvah daraisa. But then there, according to the Ramban and others, you can definitely say that when a person eats something L'Shem Shemayim, it's a form of a mitzvah, not just the Rabbana, the Raisa. According to the, the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, in chapter 7, he doesn't specifically say it, but there too, that when a person eats something, let's say eating or drinking, they eat it neutrally, so it's not Kedusha, it's also not Shalosh Klippas it's the three impure shells. It's Klippas Nega. So it's a klipa, it's encased in the, in, the, in the shell of material existence, but it's still somewhat transparent. But when you do it, L'Shem Shemayim, when a person eats meat or drinks wine, or like he says there, something humorous, in order to open up the minds of students, Nilsa Debdichase, in order to open the minds of students and learning Torah, so in other words, directing these so-called neutral things in this world, material things in this world, toward godly purpose, then it elevates into Gdusha. And so you could say, based on that, that's the dynamics of it. So, in that sense, correct. It is, in that sense, a mitzvah and a mitzvah da'araisa. But as I said, the spirit of it is no question it's a mitzvah da'araisa because the spirit is the real purpose of mitzvahs, not just to do them. You can put on film and eat kosher and Shabbos and all, everything else and not necessarily sanctify God, unfortunately. So the sanctifying of God and sanctifying godliness is the ultimate spirit behind it all, as I elaborated before. Okay. A few more questions connected to the chapter, to the Pasha, which is a very central Pasha. We also, I should add that this Pasha is the Pasha that talks about loving your fellow like yourself, and it's very consistent to, to the very theme of the chapter. Because what is loving another? And the Hillel said in the Gemara and Shabbos, Zui kola kula, this is the entire Torah, the rest is commentary. Which, of course, the question is asked, Alter Rebbe alludes to this question in chapter Lev, Lev, Love of Tanya, chapter 32, which is, means heart, Lamed Beis, and also pronounced as love. Talks about that, not love. So the, the question is, how could Hillel said to the potential convert, that the entire Torah is that which you dislike, don't do it to another, which is another form of saying the negative, of saying, there's a whole part of Torah that has nothing to do seemingly with loving another. All the mitzvahs, all the laws between you and God, prayer, kosher, Shabbos, tuma and tara, purity and impurity. I mean, there are hundreds of laws that are just between you and God. 
if you talk about Achnosa Sarchim inviting guests, Bikr Chaylim visiting the sick, other mitzvahs that are connected, Milz Chasadim doing kindness to another, so that all goes under the rubric of loving another. The second question you could ask, you could see people who do Torah and not necessarily are more loving. Sometimes the opposite, unfortunately. Divisiveness, judgmentalism. I don't want to use the word hatred, but negative things. And finally, you see people who are actually very loving and they don't follow Torah mitzvahs, technically speaking. So what Hillel's statement is a beautiful statement, but how do you explain it? There are people who do do things to others that they don't like, even though they do mitzvahs. There are people who don't, who don't technically do mitzvahs right now. And the answer is all answered in one fell swoop by the Alta Rebbe in Tanya. Powerful answer. Which is all on the Pesach V'Haftarech Kamech. The answer is, what is love? What is love? How is love truly possible? How could one human being, who's a self-contained individual, and has avis atzmei, love, self-love, adam karavetzel atzmei, is the rule. A person is subjective and prejudiced to themselves. They'll see flaws on another, they don't see flaws on themselves. That's the way we were created. So how could you actually love another? And kamoicha, not just love, kamoicha, like yourself. Says the Alter Rebbe, right in, the, right in chapter 32, the rule. That that's only possible when when you make the spirit primary and the body secondary. If a person worships the body more than the soul, so bodies are separate from one another. Materialism divides. I sit in my chair, you can't sit in my chair unless I stand up. We can't share the same food unless one of us will have less, or money or any other physical item. But when it comes to spirit... We may be in different chairs, but we can love each other and care about each other as if we're one. You can have someone a million miles away and, as if, and they're here with you right as if they're right sitting right, right near you, right inside of you. You could sit near someone and despise them. So spirit transcends time and space, transcends the differences between the physical time and space and creates true unity. So I may give you a piece of food. Yes, physically I may have less, but spiritually I have more. So the primary thing to remember is that Ava Sisra, after Echel is based on recognizing the soul that connects us all. And that's what the Torah is. The whole Torah came to to create dominance of spirit over matter. Even the mitzvahs between man and God. Shabbos, Kashos, why do we do it? To bring Kedusha, holiness, sanctity into this world. To introduce transcendence, the transcendence of spirit over matter to refine and spiritualize the material world. And that's why Hillel says they're one and the same. All mitzvahs, all, go under, all Torah goes under that concept of spiritual refinement, which is loving another or the, 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 the negative version of it, don't do unto others that which you dislike done to yourself. The fact there are people who do mitzvahs and don't have it, they're missing the spirit. They're missing the Kedeshim to you. The fact that people are kind and loving and don't yet do mitzvahs, imagine what they'd be like if they did mitzvahs. It would only enhance it and make it grow and become even more powerful. So that's, the, the, in a nutshell, this uh, topic. So a few more questions, and then we'll take that. The next question is, Hi, Rabbi. In the Torah portion, it's, it's 
portion it says we are not allowed to gossip and slander our neighbors even if what we are saying is true. Yeah, that's all part of not, not hurting another person, not disliking another person, definitely not slandering them. If this is the rule, then why does the Torah tell gossip and slander about some of the characters in the Bible by telling detail about some of their sins and faults? Is Hashem guilty of Lashon Hara by writing to the Torah that Moshe hid the rock instead of speaking to it? Or that Aaron's sons drank too much before going to serve in the temple? If the Torah can tell gossip because it is teaching us something important, such as don't do the same mistakes that Esav did, then why can't we tell Lashon Hara in order to let the community know not to make the same mistakes? Mr. Smith did not make the same mistakes Mr. Smith did or to stay away from Mr. Jones because he acts dishonestly, dishonestly, etc. So I think you answered your own question. But let's spell it out. Yes, Lashon Hara is, just as it says, Magidvar of the Akachukim and of the Yisrael, everything God tells us to do, he also does. So he also will not speak Lashon Hara, obviously. When the Torah talks about something like that, it's in order to teach us something. I discussed last week the Gemara says that the Torah will change, add words to not even insult an animal, an impure animal. So it'll say, Eina Teheda. Not a Tmeya, it won't say that impure animal, it'll say an animal that's not pure. But then when it comes to halacha, when you need clarity, you have to state it clearly because there can be misunderstandings. As the Rebbe explains in a beautiful Sicha, Noyach, in volume 10 of Lukutis Sichas. When the Torah talks about the facts of Moshe Rabbeinu or others that did something that the Torah considers wrong, it's, on the contrary, it's not coming to tell us, the Torah is not telling, it's not a storybook. The Torah Melosh and is directives. And as directives, it's a lesson in life, many lessons in life. And every time when we have this type of story where something is said that seemingly shines not a positive light on someone, you have to right away ask the question, why was the Torah tell us this? You have to, we have to learn from this. And that's what the Torah speaks about. And that's why it mentions these things so we shall learn from it. Can we apply that in halacha as well? Yes. When, for example, in a, in a court of law, not someone takes law in their own hands. In a court of law, in a bezdin, determines that someone did a crime and it's important to publicize because he's danger to others or other reasons. And we talked about this especially lately in the context of uh, predators and molestation and uh, abuse, then it's not a matter of lush and hard. It's danger to others. Or sometimes in order to learn a lesson. But just to go slander someone because you don't like them. Or for whatever reason, even if you don't have a reason, is absolutely unacceptable. So that's the distinction between something. So it wouldn't be called Lush and Hara then. Then it'd be called, the Torah says, this is an important thing to tell people either because something is dangerous. You don't say, a person is running around with a, a redif, is running with a knife in his hand. It's Lush and Hara to say that, he's, that he can murder someone, that he has murdered someone, that he's possible of murdering. Because it's right now media danger. Just as a strong example. And the same thing on more subtle levels. But just a Lush and Hara just to speak about someone evil, negative, as, and has no benefit from it, that's just gossip and slander, then it has no benefit. That's a, a serious misdemeanor, a serious sin, a serious transgression. In that spirit, Shalom Rabbi Jacobson, in your thought-provoking discourse, Pesach, the Exodus strategy, strategy, this is a class I gave pre-Pesach on Wednesday night 
uh, before Pesach, you mentioned speaking one's truth in relation to abuse and victimization by abusers. How do we balance this with the wish to avoid Lashon Hara? Wishing you and your family Echag Pesach Sameach with much love and appreciation from Canada. Okay, this was before Pesach. Well, I just answered that question. When it comes to saving a life or pr- protecting a life, even on doubt, all these laws of Lashon Hara go off because you're talking about saving a life. If you're talking about just talking about someone, and you're not, and, and, and even if others can talk about it to save a life, but you're not doing it for that reason because you're not even there in a situation where you could save a life just to talk about someone, that's absolutely unacceptable. Two more Parsha questions. I know the Parshas are very filled with all kinds of practical lessons as well, so let's do two more. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, because of a medical issue, my wife and I are having difficulty having children. In the, in the Parsha, it warns people not to, not to worship Moloch, the coming Parsha, it warns people not to worship Moloch, and especially not to worship it with human sacrifice. Moloch was an Aved Zara. That was, people brought, Rahman al-Litzlan, human sacrifices. Would it be as gula for my wife and I to be able to have children if we publicly promise that we will not sacrifice our children to Moloch? Moloch. In the literal sense, today, I don't think that Avedizara exists. And uh, I would not, and even if it did, I would stay away from the whole concept. I don't think you have to publicly announce that you're not going to serve this idol. But I think symbolically, and maybe this is the deeper lesson from this very verse, this prohibition, you could ask the question, who is it relevant to today? First of all, is there such an idol even? And even if there was, we're not in that world. What's the relevance? The relevance is very clear. It may not be the idol that we actually sacrifice, a human sacrifice physically, but we can spiritually sacrifice our children, psychologically, emotionally. When we give our children away to material success and forget about their souls, when we teach them selfishness or the absence of kindness through our own negative example, this is sacrificing your children to to a service that is strange to God. When we don't do Gadeshim to you, when we don't sanctify our lives, when we grow up in a home, when the children growing up in a home, you don't educate them and teach them. You're put to the, in this world in order to bring light to the world, in order to rise, to transcend, to bring transcendence and Kedusha and holiness to the world. You're sacrificing them to the material forces of life. So I have no question in my mind that if you made a commitment, privately or publicly, I don't know if it has to be public. No, it has to always be done with discretion in a respectful way. But make a commitment that I want to bring children to this world. Like what did Chana tell Hashem? Give me a child and I'll give that child to you. So I'm not suggesting you have to create a Shmuel in that way. But you give your child to God in the beautiful sense. That child should be a servant of God. An ambassador of what God wants us to achieve in this world. I have no doubt that will open up channels of the bracha and the gift of having a child. And Hashem should help you that that should happen very soon. And finally, what lessons do we learn from Pigel? In this week's chapter, it talks about Pigel and Noisar. Pigel is when a Kohen brought an offering. So an offering had a time limit, two days and a night. What happens if the Kohen thought, you know, he could bring the carbon in after three days? So the potato calls it Pigel. Pigel means either rejected or despicable even, as Rashi says. 
The truth is the mitzvah is already brought in Parsha Tzav, Pigel. But he's brought here in the context also of Neusar. Neusar means a carbon and offering that's left over. So what's the lesson from Pigel? So the first thing, the lesson is, is that things have time. There are time limits. We live in a material world, and the point is to bring Gedusha into this material world. A person could think, as long as I'm bringing transcendence into the world, who cares if it's one day, two days, three days, five days? No. It needs to permeate the world on the world's terms. That's why we have deadlines. Shachris is in the morning, Mincha is in the afternoon, Mayav is in the evening. The offering of yesterday, that's supposed to be the carbon tamid that's brought yesterday, cannot be brought today. You can't put on film on Tuesday if you missed it on Monday for two days. Because it's important to refine the very time, as explained in Chassidus. Every day is also energy. The garment, the energy of that day is missing. It's not just the mitzvah, it's also permeating the very time. It's one lesson. Lesson number two, you could say, it's up to me, it's my offering. What difference does it make? It's a, no, you're offering offering to God, and God is saying, this is the way to do it. It's part of the bitl, part of us suspending our own interests. Three, the power of thought. You could think, I'm bringing the offering, what difference does it matter what I'm thinking about? Intention matters. <laughs> Intention matters. The way you, your kavana, your intention, is critical. And this is a lesson that can be taught to all of us, including our children. Okay. So a lot we covered here, we covered Kedoshim. I want to cover a few other things. How do I explain to my children that we can't attend a Yemat event or carnival? I'm not asking about Sfira, rather due to lack of clarity on, on, on our stance on Yemat Okay, it's a sensitive question, and it's good that you've asked it. I think I've addressed it in the past, but let me briefly say this. It's in general the attitude toward modern Zionism, or you can say the foundation, the formation of the State of Israel in 1948. So there's an interesting letter the Rebbe wrote to President Shazar. President Shazar was president of Israel, who was a chassid and came many times to see the Rebbe, before he was president, and then when he was president three times, or a few times, and then after he retired, so the Rebbe wrote him a letter, and he, with, with, with his title, President of Eretz Yisrael, he writes the Rebbe back and says, why is the Rebbe causing me and depriving me from my ability to be a chassid while also committed to my duties and my oath of office, where I took an oath that I'd be president of the state of Israel, Medina Yisrael, not Eretz Yisrael. By the Rebbe writing that, he's like causing me to have to choose to be a chassid of the Rebbe. The Rebbe responds to him briefly. It's a long letter, but the Rebbe says, firstly, you've been a chassid of a chassid long before you knew me. I, how could I take away your ability to be a chassid? Secondly, on the contrary, the state of Israel began in 1948. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, began thousands of years ago. So on the contrary, by writing that Eretz Israel, you're president of a country that's been here for a long time. The state of Israel was granted in the UN, which means, hypothetically, God forbid, they can come and take it back as well. The land of Israel was granted by God. So it's critical to understand that, I'm talking now, talking from Chabad's perspective, the Rebbe's perspective, God forbid any opposition to the land of Israel and the people there. 
the Rebbe sent Chassidim there, the Alter Rebbe sent Chassidim there. With the Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, bought land, lived there, Shluchim are there. One Chabad is probably the largest in Eretz Yisrael than any other place in the world. After World War II, there were options. The Jews, the Chabad came out of Russia. They could have gone to many places, established Kvar Chabad, then Nachlos Chabad, and all the different communities. Chabad is part and parcel of the whole country, is running the country. Go to the army, pay taxes, are involved in many different ways. And encouraged. And the Rebbe was involved in so many different ways. The question is that Israel began in 1948. So Yemat which is the Independence Day, signifies that beginning. So it's not a statement of defiance against Israel, God forbid. It's making a statement that ideologically and spiritually, Israel didn't begin in 1948. It began long before that. And that's the key thing to remember. So it's not a statement against, it's a statement for. So there is a certain avoiding, celebrating that, like, uh, um, uh, uh, who is it? The Gerer Rebbe said that just like Ben Gurion doesn't say Hillel on Yom Tzimut, so don't I. But that's more on a humorous note. The point being is, that we say, we praise God and thank God for every, all the gifts that he's given us, including allowing Jews, now millions of Jews, over 8 million Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. That's not at all the question about celebrating that. The question is whether it's limited in that particular fashion. That's what I would explain. And I make sure to explain that it's not a negative, it's a positive thing. It's a for, not against. That's the key thing to remember. Now, this could be sensitive to some. They say, why not? Others are celebrating it. So no one's taking away from anybody's celebration. No one's going out to protest it. But internally, since we're talking about it, this is the understanding and the giving of it, the, 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 the ideology behind it, rather. Okay. On a different note, next question is this. My mother passed away a few days ago. Sorry to hear. What is a good way that my brothers and I can honor my mother? So first of all, my heart goes out to you, and Hashem should console you. They should only have good simchas and joy in your life. Well, besides the shiva, which since you say it's a few days ago, and besides uh, the other things we do, Kaddish and the davening and all the things that we do to honor a mother and a parent, anything you do that lives up to her legacy, that perpetuates her legacy. Remember, your mother stood for things. I'm not sure who it is, but whatever, you know. So anything you can do, both in your own personal life and your brothers and your siblings and your children, if you're in that place yet, to teach them, talk about it. Yes, there's a space missing now that she's not there physically, but her spiritual space is there. So speak about it. Not just speak about it, act on it. If you're capable, build something, maybe a charitable gift toward an institution that's in that spirit of, of her legacy, what she would be proud of. And it could be on many different levels. It could be something big, it could be something small, whatever you're capable of. So that way we don't just continue, but we actually build something like a living memorial, something that lives on. I don't like the word memorial, so that's called a living eternal. So though her body is not here, you create her body by living and by doing things. I know just recently somebody spoke to me in our organization. I'm not suggesting you have to give our organization, but 
They said, my, my mother used to love your programs, and I'd like to sponsor a series of programs in her honor. That's an example. So find something your mother really loved and commit to it, and find a way to perpetuate it or build something on it. And I'm sure there are more ideas, but these are the central ones I would spell out. Okay. Completely different note. We are now in the month in the month of year when we're at the Omer, so we don't count, we don't play music and listen to music. And yet this question I thought would be fitting because it's Rishkhaidish. So even though on one hand it's not music, but let's just read it anyway. In our Chabad house upstate, they allow us to bring our musical instruments to accompany Hallel when Rishkhaidish falls on a weekday and instruments are permitted to be played, which again is not now in Rishkhaidish year, but in different Rishkhaidish. Not only is it fun and it makes going to shul fun instead of being a chore, but in my opinion, it brings out much more joy than it was than if it was just people davening without music. I understand that according to strict halacha, musical instruments shouldn't be played on Shabbos, but why don't more shuls do this on weekdays? With musical instruments, it is probably a more authentic davening and closer to what they did in the base of Midrash when the Levites played musical instruments and sang in a choir. I seem to remember once as a kid in 770 that the Rebbe asked a man to please bring his violin to a weekday mairiv and play along with everyone singing after davening. Do you remember this? Yes, I do, but it was after davening and this man also would play violin during Kershaw Brocha when the Rebbe would distribute wine after the, the large fabrengens at the end of Yom Tov, whether it was after Simchus Torah, after Achen Shal Pesach, and after Shavuos. Um, but it was after davening. There are issues with playing music during davening, and I don't want to go into the halachic matters of this. This you can ask a rabbi. But the idea of introducing music wherever possible after davening or in general having events, firstly, it has caught on more and more. And you see what it does. It inspires people. It's great for children. It's great for adults. So I'm all for that. And I think it's a tremendously wonderful thing. I know it sounds a little strange that I'm talking about it in Omer. But you know what? Talking about it is allowed. And it's important to remember, the fact that we don't play music in Omer is like the Rebbe says about other things, is because Omer accomplishes what music would accomplish. And we have to honor the passing of the 24, the sad, the tragic uh, passing of the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva that died in the plague during this time because of their, what? Not honoring one another. But, uh, but beyond that, wherever possible, by all means, look like by Omer is so much celebrated with music, musical events. So the more the merrier part of Yiddishkeit is song and melody. It's actually the language of the soul. I've spoken about it many, many times. So I think it could be, should be encouraged wherever possible. But after davening would be more, more appropriate, then uh, that, that would be the best time to do it, yeah. Okay, so now let me conclude with a chassidist question, which I already actually addressed, addressed, answered, can we be as holy as God? And the answer is, the Baal Shem Tov's interpretation, yes, you could be as holy as I, and my Gedusha above comes from your Gedusha. In some ways, we actually generate God's holiness. So I will elaborate on that before, but it's a good place to end, because it tells us about the human being, what we're capable of. We're capable of being like God. And that's because God gave us a divine soul, obviously. We're not replacing God, God forbid. We're not, we're not partners with God in the sense like shituf. But we're partners with God in creation. He gave us part of His holiness and said, 
you bring holiness, my holiness, my sanctity, my light, my energy into this world. Transform it. You have the power to do so. And you have the power to, me, to sanctify me. We also have, God forbid, the power to desecrate, as we discussed earlier. But Kedoshim Tiyu says, sanctify God. Don't desecrate. But not just the absence of desecration, but actually real sanctification. What a beautiful message. And with that, I'd like to conclude this episode of my life. Chassidus Applied, episode 400. Tough is 400. And may we, through this program, and may you, through everything that you do, indeed sanctify God's name until the point where we see this Kedusha radiating and submerging the entire existence in the words that we said in the Haftarah of Achash Pesach, Mola Ares Deus Hashem. The world be fill, will be filled with the with divine knowledge. Kamayim layom mechasim, like the waters cover the sea. We're here every Sunday, eight to nine p.m. This has been my life. Chassidus applied. Thank you and be well. Freilchen and happy Rosh This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com/donate.